Welcome to another episode of the CNS Controversies and Neurosurgery podcast. My co-host, Dr. Seth Oliveira, and I, Rashma Ali, are excited to hear our guest speaker, Dr. Ryan Orman, who's an Associate Professor of Neurosurgery at the University of Colorado, talk about the nuances and controversies associated with awake versus sleep mapping for tumors. Welcome, uh, Dr. Orman. We'll, we'll kick things off by um, asking you, you know, a question that a lot of uh, trainees have, uh, even those who are actively engaged in clinical practice, is, you know, what are the characteristics that make a patient a good versus a poor candidate for awake mapping? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. I think um, what's interesting is if you do this for a while, you just kind of meet a patient for about five minutes and you typically know if they're going to, to be an easy or a very difficult patient for, for an awake operation. Um, so there, there's some nuance, obviously, to all this, but I think there are some challenges, right, with, uh, with awake surgery. And I think patients with uh, strong mental health histories of especially anxiety disorders, claustrophobia, um, and, uh, and or PTSD and some of those, uh, as well as substance use disorders tend to struggle more in an awake setting. Um, obviously younger patients, patients with a language barrier um, that can't be accommodated well for in the operating room, patients with uh, speech deficits um, or other cognitive uh, deficits, impulsive patients, for example. I mean, these are all patients that are not complete contraindications necessarily for awake surgery, but ones that present uh, challenges and sometimes make it um, impossible to uh, to proceed or to successfully get through a, an awake operation. And again, this is Seth Oliveira. Um, and thank you, Dr. Orman, for being here. And, and so um, maybe just to back up just a little bit. So, so kind of for some of our more kind of junior trainees who might be listening, why might you want to do an awake surgery? Right. So, you know, when we think about structure and function in the brain, um, non-invasive imaging does give us uh, some understanding of, of what's going on from a functional perspective, but it's all secondary information, right? So if we're looking at a bold signal, um, it's helpful, but it's not perfect. And it's based on normal subjects, right? So if you have someone with any pathology, um, tumor or otherwise, that alters the, uh, the brain anatomy and likely its physiology as well and can distort the signal, whether we're talking about diffusion, tensor imaging, um, the bold signal, right, and in, in MRI, um, even vascular signals can sometimes uh, be different. And so it can be a challenge in a non-invasive fashion outside the OR to understand anatomy and physiology perfectly. And now we're talking about invasive procedures into the brain, whether they be functional procedures or tumor resections, um, especially in the case of diffuse glioma, uh, let's say, where tumor is intermixed typically with functional cortex. And, you know, the whole brain is, is functional. So we're not going to talk about 
you know, eloquent versus non-eloquent brain and get into that debate. But there certainly are areas that we deem more important for what makes us human and uh, and certain functions we're more pressed to want to preserve. And there are limitations to to mapping, whether it be asleep or awake, and those those limitations are different and unique to each modality. Um, but in general terms, there aren't effective means of mapping speech and language from a stimulation perspective in the operating room and in the sleep patient. Um, other modalities that's a, such as sen sensory inputs and vision also um, aren't well mapped in the sleep patient. Motor function, I think you have uh, a little more flexibility, but um, that can also pr produce challenges both in the awake and the asleep patient. So I, I, I think a lot of these questions are patient specific, localization of the tumor or other pathology, um, type of pathology, whether it's a diffuse or a focal um, pathologic entity. I think all these play a role in terms of decision-making. And you're still restricted, right? If you think about stimulation mapping in the operating room, you're talking about doing something for a few seconds at most, and what can you test in those few seconds um, to then detect that losing this uh, area of the brain is going to be a problem. Um, and that's where some other non-invasive testing, um, in addition to what we've talked about already, but uh, um, you know, some of the more advanced MR techniques can sometimes help us understand the connectome better um, and where different pathways may converge and, and create a problem for the patient uh, even before surgery. Um, and that's not even getting into discussions of brain shift at surgery and, and some of the challenges that that uh, poses to us as we operate. So you touched upon um, some limitations uh, that uh, we as surgeons encounter when we're doing awake mapping in the operating room. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit in terms of what limitations exist for certain types of uh, mapping modalities? Well, I think there's some practical things when you're doing awake surgery, right? So we need to make sure that the patient um, can be awake and alert and at the time we need them to be and cooperative. So, but how can they be comfortable, right, through that process? And so there's many different ways people do that. Um, some authors uh, describe using LMA or even full endotracheal intubation and then waking the patient after uh, craniotomy. Others uh, talk about conscious sedation techniques using uh, uh, various drugs, and we can get into the details of that too and into the weeds a little if you want. Um, and, th and there's different ways to do it, but the point is, you know, how do you get the patient to an awake state comfortable, calm, right, to then get get through the case well. I mean, this is maybe a little banal, but one of the things that I do for my patients is they choose the music that is listened to in the operating room. So they feel, you know, it's one, it's a small thing, but it's something they control completely. Um, and, uh, and some of them really take it, uh, you know, I've had, I have patients who bring playlists into the hospital on their own Spotify account and log in and we just play their playlist, right? Or that their loved ones have put together for them. So that's a little thing that I do that helps 
calm the patient as they go into the operating room and, and has made a difference for them in my hands. That's great. Um, and since we're going to kind of talk about, you know, awake versus a sleep mapping, um, can you tell us just a little bit about you know, maybe what you can test asleep versus awake and maybe how you, you know, kind of the differences between an asleep kind of mapping surgery versus an awake one? Right. So I think if you look at all of neurophysiology that's used, right, there's a lot of different modalities used in the operating room setting. Um, from a sleep perspective, you think about things like motor evoked potentials, sensory evoked potentials, um, auditory brainstem evoked responses, lower cranial nerve testing, um, obviously down into the spinal cord as well. We're just focused on the, uh, the cranial compartment uh, for this discussion. But um, you know, more specifically, when we think of electrical stimulation, right, direct electrical stimulation, then you can start talking about details such as frequency and, and current thresholds and monopolar versus bipolar stimulation. And there's a lot of different methods uh, that go together and, you know, and whether it works or not. And you know, the most common, I think, in a wake setting classically has been the Ogeman uh, bipolar stimulation technique, which is a low fre frequency technique uh, with, with bipolar um, stimulation, five millimeters between electrodes. And, you know, there are techniques with high frequency bipolar stimulation, train of five techniques that several authors have published on that do appear to have a lower um, after discharge potential. Um, so potentially less uh, problems with, uh, with seizure, intraoperative seizures and monopolar techniques as well. But then there are challenges with localization uh, with, with these methods. In, in the asleep patient, I think in general terms, if you want to talk about the 30,000 foot view, maybe um, patients need higher levels of stimulation. Uh, they're, they're more dependent on um, level of sedation. So you may need different, so your threshold won't necessarily stay the same throughout the procedure. And I think that's important to, to recognize, right? Just like with motor evoke potentials. And then you ask specifically about, you know, what is reasonable for a sleep versus awake. I, and if we talk about sensory motor mapping, language mapping, which are probably the three most common modalities we speak of, in awake mapping, really motor is the only one that we would talk about from a sleep perspective. There aren't good language mapping techniques outside of non-invasive imaging overlay and navigation um, that are well-developed in the sleep arena. And that's certainly true for the, for the sensory system as well. Um, visual system I would add too is really better in the awake patient and visual evoked potentials. Um, I think are a little bit about, you know, they tell you you have a problem, they don't help you predict and avoid a problem. So um, I don't know many surgeons who use visual evoked potentials outside of research settings in the operating room. Are you using motor very often with awake patients or are you doing that typically asleep? So with me, I do is in my personal practice, I give patients the option of awake versus asleep if if it's non-dominant cortex and I'm only concerned about motor. 
especially if it's a focal lesion like a metastasis, let's say, and, and you just need to identify your corridor of entry and then have a pretty clear, you know, whether it's a cavernoma, let's say, uh, or a metastasis, then I think the asleep patient is, uh, is very appropriate in the motor setting. I think um, if I need to do language mapping, visual mapping to try to preserve vision um, or sensation, then I'm always going to be doing it awake. Um, if if there's any way to do it awake in that patient, now there, you know if there's a patient who there's no way they can tolerate awake from a neuropsychological perspective, um, or you've tried and failed to do it awake, then you have to sometimes think of alternatives. And you know from a glioma perspective, what I always tell my trainees is. You're not debating between zero and 100% resection. It's always 80 versus 85% resection, where 85% gives them a fixed deficit and 80% won't. And you got to find that 80%, right, for that given patient or the 65% or the 95%, whatever, that leaves them without a new neurologic deficit, but gets maximal resection, right? So I, I think emphasizing. The safe part of the maximal safe resection, I think, is important when you talk to patients and why we're even having the discussion. In the sleep patient, why do you still want to map whatever you can? It's, again, an emphasis on safety and neuronal preservation, mm -hmm. functional preservation. So it, um, it appears that, you know, the, the type of lesion uh, does play a part uh, in addition to its location in helping you decide um, which modality you're going to employ. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, so we talked about localization already, right? So dominant versus non-dominant hemisphere. You know, there are a number of patients who have bilateral language representation as well as right-sided dominance. Um, but... Uh, and, that can often be teased out from either uh, functional MRI or WADA testing before surgery. And, uh, and with that sorted, then you can usually determine based on localization what your needs are. I find that uh, diffuse lesions such as glioma, um, I'm more inclined to do an awake surgery simply because it, it, these tumors frequently cross and need at least an assessment of resection from eloquent areas, uh, you know, in either cortex. And there's some argument that you might, I, from my experience, this is anecdotal, but from my experience, I think a sleep mapping, at least from a motor perspective, is as safe at preservation as uh, awake mapping, but resection might be a little better simply because our thresholds are more constant. And uh, so we, at least in my hands, I think I do. I I can't prove this. I've looked at my own series, and I can't prove that my extended resection is better. It's not. It's no different from a statistical perspective. Um, but my anecdotal perspective is that I I believe I get closer because I'm confident of the threshold current necessary for whatever modality I'm using to get me, you know, closer and closer to the lesion without going into the, I mean, into the eloquent area that I'm mapping without going into and through it. Um, whereas with the sleep, because of changing levels of sedation and different levels of, uh, of current that you have to apply to, to get a consistent signal, I think as long as you get the signal, you can be confident. But 
how close can you get to the signal, I think is somewhat debatable. Um, just like the value of monopolar versus bipolar stimulation in low and high frequency, I think it depends on if you're talking cortical versus subcortical mapping as well. And I think that um, can be challenging. And I think that's evident in the literature where, you know, uh, there are different modalities out there. And neurophysiology, I think, is a little, especially on the asleep side, mixed in terms of recommendations for what to use. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because that is, there's always sort of, I think, with any mapping procedures, there's a little bit of a, a bit of uncertainty to it. <laughs> you, you, you know, I think most surgeons, we like to have control over all the variables and sort of the key variable of the surgery, I always feel like you have a little less control than you might want because I think, you know, there's limitations for both types of procedures, asleep or awake, and they're different, right? That you kind of alluded to the awake, some of the awake limitations is the patient kind of participation. Now, sleep, there's limitations also. You know, you've also alluded to those are you know, kind of more anesthetic and, um, you know, any kind of pearls of how to try to maximize your chance of success? Yeah, so um, I guess one of, there's one other thing to go back before I answer that question, right? One of, one of the other um, patients that may be more appropriate for an awake setting versus in a sleep setting is an elderly patient or a patient with um, higher anesthetic risk, sometimes doing that patient awake um, under local plus or minus conscious sedation is actually safer for the patient from a cardiopulmonary perspective, um, you know, where we are treating older patients. You know, the guidelines, the CNS guidelines do recommend in patients over 70 still if they're if they have a decent KPS score to have maximal safe resection. And in that setting, sometimes cardiopulmonary risk becomes an issue and makes an, an awake surgery uh, more valuable in that regard too. So that being said, now you ask about what are pearls to try to optimize um, mapping, whether they're asleep or awake. I, I think in the awake patient, the most important thing is patient comfort, right? So if you can prepare the patient well beforehand for expectations, right? I think that's very helpful. And, you know, one of the challenges that we face is, you know, the patient with high anxiety would love to get a benzodiazepine, but you give a benzodiazepine or something like dexmedetomidine and suddenly we're, we're stuck with um, a patient who makes uh, semantic and or phonemic errors <laughs> from the sedation um, at baseline that they maybe didn't make without sedation. And some of these agents are relatively long lasting. So from a practical standpoint, I, I typically use propofol and remifentanil because they're short acting. And if keeping them on um, is a problem for the patient to do mapping, then maybe we have to turn them off completely and they come off and on relatively quickly. In my local, I use not just uh, bupivacaine and lidocaine um, in combination, but I add a little clonidine. Mm. And clonidine increases the length of, uh, you know, the, how long your, your local lasts in the patient, but it also has some mild um, calming effects. It's mm. part of the dexmedetomidine, but is not as sedating. Mm -hmm. So, and it's given subcutaneously, so it doesn't uh, go systemically very quickly. So I use 
Um, I mean, I can be very practical here. So I use 25 milligrams of 1% lidocaine with 1 100,000 parts epinephrine with 25 mLs of quarter percent plain bupivacaine. I add to that five milli milliliters of sodium bicarbonate um, and then 100 micrograms of clonidine. That's so, really yeah. and that's that's what I mix into and it, it you know, is my local for my for my regional block, mm -hmm. uh, Mayfield pin block. And, you know, my blocks last with that addition of clonidine the last an hour or two longer, um, consistently use about, you know, 30% less local through the course of the procedure. They have much less muscle pain and we're often going through the temporalis to do these procedures. Um, and you don't have quite the sedative effect. Some people use dexmedetomidine for that, either with the local or IV. And I find that this is less sedating and, and causes fewer semantic errors um, with the awake mapping cases. So, um, so I find that useful. Um, in the asleep patient, I think level of sedation is important. So I think you need to monitor carefully patient's level of sedation. I use transcranial uh, motor vote potentials as well. Some people use subdural grids to do that. Um, instead, I just go transcranial before the procedure and we set up electrodes and we have that as a baseline and we all, we do bilateral motor vote potentials so that um, if you're not finding threshold or not finding right corticospinal tract or the motor primary motor homunculus with uh, stimulation on the surface or subcortically, um, you have a backup for a double check on the system, especially if you're using monopolar stimulation, then it's a really good check on the system um, because you're just using essentially higher thresholds transcran transcranially. Um, so it can be a double check for your system connected through the same EMG electrodes um, on the extremities. So those are some of the techniques that I use, um, you know, to, to help make motor mapping in the asleep patient more effective, um, especially if you kind of lose signals and you don't know why, because maybe you haven't done much um, motor one comment, One comment I'd make is that, you know, if I expect a lot of shift, like especially if it's a big tumor, sometimes I'll put a subdural uh, stimulator essentially so that it stays on the surface of the brain. So that's one way you can make yourself uncomfortable is if your brain shifts away from the like the, the cranial, you know, external kind of uh, electrodes. Yeah, it can. And, and that can be super useful. Looking for phase reversal can be useful. There are a lot of nice little adjuncts that can be, uh, that can be helpful. Um, you know, there are also things like uh, 3D navigated ultrasound that can sometimes help adjust for brain shift with navigation. So there, you know, if it's a high grade glioma and you're using uh, fluorescence guidance, um, with your navigation that can also help understand what brain shift is happening and, and where things are moving um, also subcortically. So yes, I think all those adjuncts are helpful. Um, and I think the goal for all this is find what works at your institution in your hands in your patient to make it as safe as possible. And I think the emphasis needs to be on safety. But in that same vein, um, Dr. Orman, in your practice, which mapping modality or paradigm do you find the most useful in providing you good uh, functional as well as um, oncological outcomes? So 
I traditionally in the awake setting use standard um, Ogeman stimulator like modalities, right? So I use low threshold bipolar stimulation, five millimeters between the stimulator electrodes and stimulate at right at 60 hertz between typically one and six. And, and you know, usually between two and four milliamps of current you get threshold. Um, I tend to balance, you know, there's there's a group of surgeons who very strongly feel you need a large craniotomy, right, in awake mapping and get your positive thresholds on motor homunculus and speech mapping first on the cortex and then go to the lesion. And there's a, another group of authors who feel, feel very strongly that thresholds are so um, commonly at, you know, the same levels in an awake patient that it's also reasonable to do a smaller opening and uh, find negative thresholds up to 10 milliamps as long as you don't get after discharge potentials and you're safe to resect with similar results. So I'm not going to get in that debate, but in my practice, I tend to be a little more in moderation where I do make not a huge craniotomy, but I try to intentionally cross a little bit of the motor homunculus or um, expressive speech area because I think patients especially who present with mild semantic or phonemic errors at baseline can be a little difficult to tease out sometimes if they're worse with stimulation, especially when you're looking for threshold. And so it's really nice just to have the frontal operculum exposed just slightly. Um, even if you otherwise just need a temporal exposure, I like that uh, because then I can find my threshold on motor tongue or uh, or causing speech arrest and uh, and then go from there down into my temporal lobe cortical uh, to still find threshold. So that's just it gives me a lot of reassurance, at least in the awake patient without a very much larger craniotomy. So that's my typical practice. Yeah, there are proponents. I know we're reaching our limit on time, but there are proponents for just doing a, a you know, negative mapping to prove to yourself yeah. that nothing. And that's what I've said. So you do negative mapping. If it's all negative to high, but I, but I do think that if you stimulate up to say ten milliamps, which is kind of the standard with the the Ogeman boxes that are you know they're not being made anymore, but uh, but other you know, companies certainly still have their products. So I'm not advocating for any specific product, but the higher you stimulate, the higher your risk of intraoperative seizure events are. I mean, that's well, well known in the literature and has been for a long time. There's some people who even advocate for no electrocorticography as long as you uh, only stimulate below certain thresholds uh, and have similar, at least um, symptomatic, right? Seizure results uh, as uh, surgeons who operate with electrocorticography. So I, you know, I typically don't stimulate above six milliamps, even though I also use electrocorticography. Um, I also use two anti-epileptic agents, even in patients who had, did not present with seizures. And I typically use, in that setting, I use levetiracetam and uh, phosphenatoin is, are typically my go-to agents if there aren't allergies. Um, and I typically use one added agent, even if they're on a baseline anti-epileptic coming into the operating room, uh, because I do feel that direct electrical stimulation does increase uh, seizure risk. And you know that's the worst thing that can happen is the patient has a seizure, 
can't talk, maybe they're not intubated, and now what do we do? It's much better for us if we can prevent that, which is why electrocorticography looking for after discharges, I think, can be very useful at preventing intraoperative, even subclinical seizure events, which can be picked up, and then we can understand why we're having some speech problems, let's say, in a given patient. Well, that was fantastic, um, and thank you so much for uh, for this wonderful discussion, and to our listeners for tuning in for this podcast. Uh, please follow us on social media at Rushna Lee Six at Seth uh, Oliveira at CNS Update for upcoming podcast episodes and other educational materials. Thank you, everyone.